This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. I want to start out by asking you a couple questions this morning. First one, who is it that we are called to love? Right, as followers of Jesus, who is it that we're called to love? Or maybe asked another way, who are we allowed not to love? Who are we allowed to withhold our love from? Or not so black and white, who are we allowed to love a little less? Second question, how are we called to love? How, how, how active and involved do we really have to get with our love and how, or how close to the sidelines can we remain? When we ask those questions, we're kind of like, like a contestant on The Price is Right. Bob Barker has called us down. We have won, and we are now in the showcase showdown. And as we're getting ready to place our bid, the thought that's on our mind is, is how close can I get without going over? How much love can I show with, without showing too much love? The thing is, though, uh, Jesus told us exactly who we're called to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He told us who to love. He told us how to love. But like the lawyer in Luke 10, we are constantly, by the way, lawyers get a bad rap. We have four really incredible lawyers as a part of our church family. I, that's not, I just feel like we need to like clarify that. That's not a dig. But we're like this lawyer searching for a legal loophole trying to justify us limiting our love Seeing, in a sense, how much we can get away with and how little we actually have to do. We're, we're, we're picking and choosing who we love, making our love in some way conditional, and how we love, in some way making our expression of love optional. But as we've seen throughout this series, if the command is to love, Jesus saying in John 13, a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, if the command is to love, then love should be the measure of maturity. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have what for one another? Love. love. Loving God, thirsting for his presence, hungering for his word, as we saw in the first two weeks, and loving others. Not just one another, as Pastor Rob showed us last week, but, but going beyond that and loving our neighbor, loving anyone that God has brought into and placed in our lives. And in this morning's passage, James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, he's going to help us live out the words of Jesus, showing us who to love and how to love. And so when it comes to who it is that we're called to love, um, James makes it pretty clear. He, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, uh, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Essentially saying, show no partiality in who you love. Now, partiality, uh, it, it comes from a, from a Greek phrase meaning to receive the face. Essentially, uh, it's this idea of placing a value on someone based on their external experience, what you see, uh, how they look. And the thing is, like, we do this all the time, don't we? We do this almost without even thinking about it, subconsciously. A psychologist in Princeton, they recently published a study showing that we make a judgment about a stranger in about a tenth of a second. 
simultaneously and instantaneously evaluating five different traits based on their external appearance. Their attractiveness, their likability, their competence, their trustworthiness, and their aggressiveness. And thereby placing them in one of two groups, welcoming one group and rejecting the other. Showing favoritism to one while discriminating against the other, expressing favor towards one and fear towards the other, in a sense, loving one and withholding love from the other. And that's exactly what those in the churches James wrote to were doing. And he he goes on to tell a not-so-hypothetical story to help make his point. He, He says... Two guests, they, they come into your assembly. They, they, they enter into your church. And mind you, these were not um, large church gatherings and big buildings where it's easy to kind of sneak in around the corner and no one see you there if you kind of sit over there. Uh, no, these were smaller, intimate gatherings that took place in people's homes. Think of it more along the lines of our small groups. And like, there's nowhere to hide in a small group, is there? And so one walks in and clearly looks like they have something to offer the church. They're wearing a, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing. They're, they're attractive and likable and apparently competent. Clearly they've, they've done well for themselves. They've made good decisions along the way. But the other, the other looks like more like they're in need of something. One has something to offer you. The other has something they need from you. They're poor. They're wearing shabby clothing and like... Clearly, they made, made some bad decisions along the way. They look nothing like a Christian. And he says, if you pay attention to the one who looks like they have something to offer you, and inviting them in, welcoming them, like, can I get you some coffee? Would you like a donut? Today's first Sunday, so we have donuts out there. To clarify, we don't always have donuts on first Sunday, but it's usually first Sunday. That's kind of the rhythm if you haven't figured it out. And, and you invite them in, and you're like, I, I want to give you the best seat, and, and the best seat is clearly my seat. At least that's what I think. So I'm going to give you my, my I sit in the front row, so most of you won't think that's the best seat. But the other one, you tell the other one that looks like they're in need, can you, can you go stand over there in the corner for a bit? I got other things to do, and I'll get to you later, maybe if I have time. I don't, I don't know. Just, just stay over there. Have you not then, he says, made distinctions between the two? Have you not become judges of them with evil thoughts? I mean, think of the message that it sends to those that walk in the doors of our church or another church or or of any church for that matter. It says you are only welcome here if you measure up to our standards. And so if you don't look the right way, if you don't act the right way, think the right way, live the right way, or vote the right way, something that I know is going to be put into practice here over the course of this year, if you don't believe exactly what we believe about everything we believe, or if your past is more traumatic than we can handle, or your need is more severe than we can meet, we don't want you here. You are not welcome here. You are not our neighbor. And we are not able or more likely not willing to love you. That is a quid pro quo kind of love that limits love to those who have something to offer you while withholding it from those who might need something from you. And James, he goes on to give us three reasons why this is entirely incompatible with our faith in Jesus Christ. Why is it entirely inconsistent with the way God has uh, created and called us to live and to love? And the first is this. It's that showing partiality, it dishonors those whom God has chosen. 
it is entirely dishonoring and devaluing of others. He says in verse five, he says, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. All right, think about, think about who God has chosen and why. If we go back to the Old Testament, when, when God chose Israel, to be his old covenant people, his treasured possession, he refers to them as in Deuteronomy 7. Man, it wasn't because they were bigger, better, or faster, or better looking than any other people, he says. It wasn't because of any of the metrics that the world uses to define success and maturity. He says, no, it's, it's because the Lord loves you. What did George say? God loves because he loves. This is just who he is. He can't help it. He, the Lord loves you, keeping an oath he swore to your fathers, to Abraham. That's why he redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh. Not because you did anything. It's because of who he is. And the same is true when he chose us, when he chose the church as his new covenant people, the, the body of Christ, his bride. He, he chose, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Hi, we're, we're foolish to them. He, he chose what is what is weak to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? He says so that no human being may boast in what they've done in the presence of God. We don't boast in who we are, but in who he is, right? And what I love is that in each case, God chose some through whom he would display his love to all. He chose some through whom he would display his love to all. He chose Israel as a light to the nations. He chose the church to not put our light under a basket, but to let it shine in the window for all to see. Because I'm pretty sure there's somewhere in here where it says God so loved um, not a few, but the what? The world that he gave his only son. And so as we think about that, who are we then to show partiality to whom we love and consider our neighbor when God shows no partiality to whom he loves? Who, who, are, who do we think we are? Who are we to make distinctions based on what we see in a tenth of a second? Who are we to judge the value of others created in the image of God? Who are we to reject those whom God has chosen regardless of who they are or what they might need or what they might have to offer? And yet, we have become experts in showing partiality, haven't we? Not just that, I think we become experts in justifying our partiality. We are on a never-ending search for a legal loophole to limit who we love and to limit who we consider our neighbor. But showing partiality, it dishonors and dehumanizes those created by God and loved by God. Proverbs 22 says, the rich and the poor, they meet together. Why? Because the Lord is the maker of them all, each and every human being created in God's image, bearing his image and loved by God. That's true of how we view one another within the church. Paul says in Galatians 3, 4, in Christ Jesus, we are all heirs. Not, not based on anything we've done, but by our faith in what Christ has done. And as a result, there is, there's neither Jew nor Greek, meaning our value is not based on our race or cultural heritage. There is neither slave nor free, meaning our value is not based on our social economic standing. It's not based on the size of your bank account. There is neither male nor female. Our, our value is not based on 
gender, these, these cultural hierarchical structures that value some above others have been obliterated in Christ Jesus. Amen? Why? Because he says, for we are all one in Jesus. It's true of how we view one another in the church. It's also true of how we view one another in the world, those that we consider our friends, even those that we view as enemies. Showing partiality dishonors, demeans, and dehumanizes. Number two, showing partiality is oppressive. He goes on to say here, he's like, what you're doing, it doesn't make any sense. He says, aren't the rich the ones who are oppressing you? And aren't they the ones that are dragging you into court? Aren't they the ones who are blaspheming the honorable name by which you were called defaming the name of Jesus? Now again, he's, he's not writing to a church that looks like this. He's not writing to a suburban church that uh, largely filled with middle-class, college-educated professionals. He is writing to poverty-stricken families who are barely making ends meet. He's writing to people who are losing their jobs and their businesses and their income. Why? Because of those who curse the name of Jesus, they wanted nothing to do with followers of Jesus. And as a result, what, what we see in this place and in this time, there were those who, they were having to take out these uh, predatory high interest loans just to make ends meet. And when they couldn't make their payments, they were fined, they were drugged into court, and they were thrown into prison, their assets seed, losing everything that they had. The wealthy became wealthier by exploiting the poor. And his point here is that they were guilty of doing the very same thing by showing partiality and making distinctions, seeking the approval and acceptance of those that they viewed above them, those who, who could help them while ignoring the poor, those they deemed below them who might need something from them. And he's equating our lack of love for our neighbor, of, of neglecting those that God has brought into and placed in our lives as both oppressive and blasphemous. oppressive by withholding the love from those who are in need of love, those whom God loves, and blasphemous, that is, it defames the name of Jesus by failing to love like Jesus. It's dishonoring, it's oppressive, and number three, showing partiality. He's like, just in case those two words didn't get your attention, he's like, just to clarify, it's sin. Showing partiality is sin. It goes against the way God has created and called us to both live and to love. He says in verse eight, he's got some if-then statements here. It says, if, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, if you live out the great command to not only love God, but to love your neighbor, those God has brought into and placed in your life, and loving them as yourself, the way that you would hope to be loved if you were in their situation, if you do this, man, then you're doing well. Way to go. Like, he, he commends them. I think a little bit sarcastically. I think there's a little bless your heart in there. But he's like, you are, you're, you're growing, you are, you are maturing. Love is the measure of maturity. You are loving more and more like Jesus. But if you show partiality towards your neighbor, and that is the opposite of loving your neighbor, in fact, it's committing sin, he says. And you are convicted by the law as a transgressor, guilty of having broke God's law of love. What he's saying here is that God views the sin of failing to love our neighbor no differently than the sin of committing adultery, no differently than the sin of committing murder. It all goes against the way God created and called us to live. It all fails to care for God's creation. 
Put another way, when we show partiality towards some, favoring some, it is if we've committed adultery with them. And when we discriminate against others, it's as if we murdered them. We are transgressors of the law. Because here's the thing. Jesus didn't summarize the entire law into the great suggestion. It was the great commandment. Making love the measure of maturity. Faithfully following the way of Jesus in obedience to the words of Jesus. Meaning, loving our neighbor is not optional. Who we love is not conditional. We don't get to pick and choose. Hey, will you be my neighbor? Won't you be my neighbor? You look nice. Attractive. I'm fine saying that. I'm speaking to a guy. You don't look aggressive. All those five things. I can't look at anybody as I say this next part. Won't you be my neighbor? But not you. Not you. No. A little aggressive over here. I can feel it. And he says, we're going to be held accountable for the way that we live and the way that we love. We will be judged by God for who we love and who we withhold our love from. And his judgment, he says, his words, not mine, will be without mercy to anyone who has not shown mercy to their neighbor in need. But then there's a little twist at the end. It says showing mercy triumphs over judgment. Loving shows triumphs over judgment. And it's almost as though he's saying, it's almost as if he's saying, if, if you profess faith in Jesus, you, you said the prayer, you, you answered the altar call, you did, you did whatever you were asked to do in the moment, making a decision, uh, inviting Jesus into your heart, whatever it was, you, you come and you, man, you sit in the same seat every Sunday, meaning you get here five minutes early to make sure you get that seat at the end of the row. And um, you do all that, but if your faith that you professed, if it does not lead to loving your neighbor, if it does not lead to living for the good of one another, how is that kind of faith of any value? What good does it do for you? What good does it do for anyone? In fact, that's exactly what he's asking. He asks in verse 14, what good is it if someone says they have faith but does not have works? If they say, I have faith, but their faith is not put to work. Professing a faith that, it, that does not lead to faithfully following the way of Jesus and obedience to the words of Jesus. Professing a faith that does not lead to loving like Jesus. He asked that question, but then he asked a couple questions underneath it. The first one being like, what good is it for you? Forget everybody else for a second. Just talking to you, an individual, what good does it do you? He says, can that kind of faith that does not lead to loving your neighbor, can that kind of faith save you? Before you answer, not show, no show of hands just yet. We gotta, we gotta answer a couple of other questions underneath that one. First one being like, okay, what is faith? Let's make sure we're on the same page here. Well, the author of Hebrews says, uh, uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is in some sense believing what scripture says about who God is, about what God has done and all he's promised to do and believing that to be true. Okay, then what are works? Well, in, in this context, they are a living out of our faith, living in light of these truths, by living in the way God created and called us to live, living uh, in right relationship with him, with others, and with all of creation. Okay, so then how, how do 
faith and works and salvation. How do we bring those together? As a left brain recovering engineer, I can think of no better way to show how these come together than by a series of equations. And all God's people said either amen or oh boy. Thank you, Ben. Jason didn't say that. Four equations, three. That's not how we do it. But one is. I'll let you see if you can figure this one out. First equation, works equals salvation, right? A equals B. Um, This views salvation as a result of your works. It's the reward for living a good life, for being a good person, thereby making faith in Christ's perfect work on the cross unnecessary. Yes or no? No, no. Way to go. Number two. See how we crossed the line through that? Faith plus works equals salvation. This one views faith in Jesus as essentially being incomplete. It's not enough. We need more requiring our work in addition to Christ's work, making it the cross and something else. And this is the group that I think we so often see Paul speaking to, saying that like, we are not saved by what you do, but what, or what Christ did for you. He says in Romans 3, we are justified by faith apart from works. He says in Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith. Yeah, yes or no? No. Equation number three. See, these aren't like hard equations, there's no exponents. There's not even the parentheses, so you got to figure out, do I, do I do the plus minus or the multiply divide first? Number three, another A equals B. So, okay, so faith equals salvation then. This views faith as necessary, but works as this sort of uh, optional bonus add-on when it's convenient and we have time. I think this is the group James is talking to. A group that I think includes much of the Western evangelical church, if we were honest, where uh, even the mention or hint of the word works makes us feel uncomfortable and throws us into a tailspin. And it makes us feel like, ah, yeah, he's saying we got to add something else in addition to faith to be saved. It's not what he's saying. Yes or no? No. Number four, faith equals salvation plus works. This is our E equals MC squared. This views faith in Jesus Christ is absolutely sufficient for salvation. There's nothing else on the left side of the equal sign. But it is a faith that not only leads to salvation, it is a faith that leads to works. Calvin, he writes, faith alone saves. Yes? Faith alone saves. But faith that saves is never alone. Meaning our works, it's, it's not a necessary ingredient for our salvation, but the result of our salvation. It's our faith at work. It is working out of our salvation, never for it. It is living because of God's love, never so that God will love. It is a type of faith that is living, that is active, a faith that leads to salvation, uh, that leads to works, that leads to love. Whereas a faith that does nothing, that leads to nothing, is a dead faith of absolutely no value. Two entirely different types of faith that lead to two entirely different results. Folks, it's just like coffee. Huh? Hear me out. Coffee's one of the greatest gifts ever given to us by God. Amen? That's the loudest amen we've ever gotten in 15 years here. But go back to Genesis 1 on the third day. 
God brought forth vegetation. Not Creeping Charlie, that came in Genesis 3. But coffee. And you know what God said? He saw it. He said it was good. It was really good. So that's why we serve. High quality, freshly ground coffee each and every Sunday here. It is simply a way to show you how much we love you. And because I love you, I need to inform you of something. I need you to know something. There, there are two types of coffee that we serve. You may have seen both in the lobby today, next to the donuts. Uh, one of them has a sign that says, regular, normal, <laughs> expected, default, all synonyms. I remember one time someone says, I don't like the coffee. I was like, how do you not like the coffee? What they meant was, I actually didn't like that specific roast. Ah, now that makes a whole lot of sense. So thanks to uh, the feedback from one person, you know what we did the next Sunday? We were, source, Ethiopia, roast, medium. Not so regular anymore. The other uh, has a sign that has one of the most vile words in the entire English language. <laughs> And we love you. <laughs> Folks, it says decaf. Might as well just say do not use. <laughs> two types of coffee, regular and decaf, that affect you in two very different ways. The smell of fresh ground regular coffee in the morning, it awakens your soul. The sound of that coffee dripping into the carafe that you've preheated with hot water, by the way, so it keeps it warm, so it doesn't make it bitter. Remember, we've talked about that. I just want to bring that reminder back out. Um, it's music to your ears, that sound. It, uh, and that first taste in the morning, it marks the beginning of a new day, of opportunity, of potential. Decaf don't do that. It is nothing more, I love you, than dark, hot water. It, it can't do any of that. And so can, can that kind of coffee, that decaffeinated kind of coffee, can it awaken you? Can it energize you? It can, one. But like by and large as the whole? No. I didn't get a chance to see you this morning. It's really good to see you back. doctor tell you that this week? Yep. yep. <laughs> Ben's back. We got two Ben's. Oh, I love you guys. Where was I? Sorry. No, you're not. It's fun. <laughs> a faith that does nothing, a faith that leads to nothing, it it's an entirely different kind of faith. It is a dead, decaffeinated kind of faith. And it is of absolutely no value to you. It does nothing for you. It does not lead to salvation. And a dead faith that does not lead to works, it's not only of no value to you, it's of no value to anyone. And that's the second question he asks. He's like, what value is it to anyone? It, it's not. Uh, he asks another uh, not-so-hypothetical question that they've experienced. And he, and he says here in verse 15 and 16, 
He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, I think that's the first century version of uh, sending you good thoughts and vibes. If you send them good thoughts and vibes without giving them the things needed for the body, the physical body, what good is that to them? A faith that leads you to see the needs of others, but never offer anything more than thoughts and prayers to others, is a faith that remains by itself, a faith that never leads to love, and if it does not have works, living out that faith by loving your neighbor, it is a dead faith. It is an entirely different kind of faith. And so I want us to go back to those four equations real quick. And I want us to think, when we see the word faith, I want you to think of faith as having received and experienced and knowing God's love. And when you see works, I want you to think of reflecting God's love, of, of loving your neighbor. And so first one, love, loving your neighbor, equals salvation. Yes or no? No. No. You know why? Because this equation is entirely void of God's love. How do you know what love looks like if you haven't received and experienced love from God? You don't. There's no way to reflect the love you have not received. First one, strike a line through that one. Number two, faith, having received God's love, plus love, reflecting God's love, that, that equals salvation, yes or no? No, the equations are in the same order, just so you know, so you can answer with confidence. No, because it says God's love's not enough. It says that our love is in addition to God's love, but here's the thing. At this point, it's on the wrong side of the equal sign, and so this is a love that we've generated within ourselves. That ain't ever love. Strike a line through number two. Number three, faith, receiving God's love, that is salvation. No, because you claim to have received the love that you have withheld and not reflected to others and not shared with others. So number four, faith, having received the love of God and knowing what this love has done for you, it leads to salvation and having experienced this love of God, it leads to sharing that love and reflecting that love to others. Loving, loving one another within the church our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ by, you know, simple things that we do here. Um, by, by getting to know each other's name and story. What's, what's our phrase? Meet someone new to you every Sunday. They're new to you if you don't know their name or you don't remember their name. And I've said a handful of names already this morning. Find out who these two Bens are, who Eric is, who Jason, you know who Jason is because he always sits there. Meet someone new to you today. We got donuts out there. There's plenty of time to stall. Or come to Welcome to Redemption afterwards. You're going to meet someone new to you there today. Or, or not just that, ask someone, hey, how can I pray for you? Right? And another phrase we have is don't just say you'll pray, stop and pray. Hey, how can I pray for you? And then right there in the middle of the hallway with people all walking around you, I don't care, just stop and pray. They're going to know what you're doing. They might even join you. I don't know what you're doing, but I'll just lay a hand on and stay here with you. How can I pray for you? How can I serve you? How can I help you? Notice the question wasn't if, the question was how. I think we're all in need of prayer, amen? We're all in need of a little help. Careful, because they might say, I'm, move, I'm moving this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I 
love one another. Let's love our neighbor. Loving the people where we live, in our communities, where we work, where we shop, and in all the places in between. Not just seeing the need, but taking a step to meet the need. We, we cannot meet in fullness every need we come across. But our response to that should not be to do nothing. It should be to do something. We can't do everything on our own. As individuals, we can't do everything on our own as a church, a local church. But think about if all of us are taking a step every day. And together we're taking a step. And we're going to get somewhere. We're going to make a difference in the world. And so like that's, that's why we've done things like creating, you guys remember these? We haven't talked about these for a while. You remember the compassion kits? We still got a few of these left. They are kits that you can have in your car to hand out when you come across someone in need. It's got a few basic supplies. There's men's kits and women's kits. We ask you to put a $25 grocery gift card in there as well. You know that intersection you come across every day on your way to work or your way back from work where you see that same person or a couple of different people. Go to golf in uh, Algonquin. Come off the freeway at Arlington Heights Road. Compassion kits, that's why we, we offer benevolence. That's why we, that's why we started the pantry a few years ago, taking a step toward meeting the needs of the most vulnerable in our community, those, uh, the, the, the babies and the children in our community. And so if you're like, okay, I'll do that as my step. Man, today, sign up to serve at the pantry. We do this on the third Saturday every month, so we're gonna have the next offering on Saturday, February 17th. And what we're gonna see next week is it even leads to loving our enemy and praying for those who persecute us. Because what James is saying here, what God is saying here through James is that our love is not conditional and our love is not optional. James says it. John says it. First John 3, he says, the message we've heard from the beginning is that we should love one another. He's like, Jesus wouldn't stop talking about it. He's like, we know what this love looks like because we, we saw it in action. He says, we know what it looks like but looking at Jesus who, he says, laid down his life for us. That's I want to know what love is. It looks like that. It looks like dying. So if you see someone need, John says, and you have the means to meet the need, but you fail to do anything, how does God's love abide in you, he asks? I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to let you answer that one. You know the answer. He says, so let us love. Not just in word and talk, but in deed and in truth and in action. James says it, John says it, and if you're still not with me, Jesus says it. And I, Jesus is rather authoritative in our lives, isn't he? He says it in a passage that we looked at last fall, uh, as we looked at our distinctive of generosity in Matthew 25. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he's going to sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations, all the peoples. He's going to separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates sheep from the goats into two groups. He's going to place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he says words that we have on our windows out here in the lobby. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you came to visit me. I was in prison and you came to me. And, and then the, the righteous, those that he's speaking to, they're gonna ask him saying, like, oh, God, Jesus, when, when did 
when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? Like, I'm pretty sure we'd have remembered that. When, when did we see you as a stranger? Like, we know you. When, when did we see you naked? Definitely would have remembered that one. And like, I don't remember signing the log of the prison to go visit you. And, and the king, he'll answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to, to one of the least of these, as you did to your neighbor, so you also you did to me. Their, their faith led not just to their salvation, but to love. It was a living faith that led to loving their neighbor as themselves. But then Jesus says to the other group, he's gonna say to those on his left, he says, depart from me. You cursed into the, you're cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. You pushed me in the corner. I was naked and you did not clothe me. You left me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or any of this? And, he, and he's gonna say, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, as you did not live out your faith in loving your neighbor, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal fire. Their faith was a dead faith that not only failed to lead to Love, it failed to lead to life and instead left, led to eternal death. James said it. John said it. Jesus says it. And they're all saying the same thing. They're all saying love is the measure of maturity. And an active living faith leads to loving God and loving our neighbor. And right about now, you may want to push back. You, you may have wanted to push back for about 10, 15 minutes, to be honest. And like you, you want to raise an objection, and I, I get it. I get it. I expected it. Um, James expected it in his letter. And so he says in verse 18, he says, you know what? Some, some will say, you have faith, I have works. Like we're all uniquely gifted. And, and love's just not my gift. It's not my thing. It might be your thing, but it's not my thing. So I, I'll do this, you do that. I'll do what works for me, you do what works best for you, or our current modern version, I'll live out my version of the truth, you live out your version of the truth. And James gives the most perfect Midwestern response ever. Yeah, no. That ain't how this works. He says, show me your faith apart from your works. And then I think there's an ellipsis in the letter that doesn't carry through in the Greek. He's waiting. No, really, show me your faith apart from your works. He's like, trick question, you can't, it's impossible. And here's why. Our faith is made visible. It is shown, it is seen by your works. It is lived out in loving your neighbor. And he goes on to say in verse 19, here's another thing. He's like, you, you believe that God is one. You know the answers to all the questions of the catechism before we even get to that page. You, you know that God is one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's like, bravo. This is like the second sarcastic bravo he's given today, hasn't it? He's like, you do well. But guess what? The demons believe that. Satan's minions, they believe that. They know exactly who God is. They know what God has done. They know what he claims to have promised to do. They know it because they got cast out by him. Satan, he quoted scripture from memory as he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Man, Satan would have been like a wanna champion. He'd have put everybody to shame. Legion, he knew when Jesus was in his presence and knew that this was the son of the 
most high God. But the thing is, their, their belief in God, their knowledge of who God is, it in no way led to loving God or loving anyone else, did it? Sure led to loving themselves, though. The point he's making here is that this is about so much more than just what we believe and what we know. It is about what we believe and we know, but it is about so much more. It is about how we live and how we love, living out what we believe. And James is like, I know some of you still aren't with me yet. I get it. I love you. I want to make sure we're all on board on this by the end. (laughs) He may have chosen his words a little different. He's like, if you still don't believe me, you foolish person. If you still don't believe me that faith apart from works is dead, that the faith that does not lead to love is, is useless, if, if the words of James, if the words of John, if the words of Jesus didn't do it for you, then he's like, okay, fine. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go all the way back. Let's see what it says. Let's go back to the book of Genesis, to the story of Abraham, a story that reveals a man counted as righteous because of his faith in God. Faith that was lived out, faith that was made visible, justified, meaning it was validated by his works. By giving back to God the son that was given to him by God, a son that was promised to him, a son that he waited a hundred years for, the son through whom God was going to make a great nation and a great people. And in the same way, the story of Rahab in the book of Joshua reveals a woman whose faith led her to risk her life to protect the lives of the spies that were sent into Jericho her faith justified and verified by her works. Like, hear me. You are not saved by what you do, but by faith in what Christ has done for you. Amen? We good with that? James says it. Paul says it like in every letter in various ways. John says it. Jesus says it. All all of Scripture screams it from, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. But it also says hear that as a body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works, a faith that is not lived out, a faith that does not lead to love is an entirely different kind of faith. It is a dead faith, a faith of absolutely no value to you because it does not lead to salvation, a faith that is no value to anyone else because it limits love. It limits who we love, making it conditional, and it limits how we love, making it optional. But a faith that is living and active. That, Jesus says, is a faith that can move mountains. A faith that is loving and alive, a faith in in who God is, a faith in a God who is love and who loves without limits, having received that love and experienced that love, that is a faith that leads to loving God and to loving others, loving all others. That is a love that demands a response, that is a love that deserves a response. That is a love that draws us in wanting to respond, reflecting that love that we have received. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.